Hey everybody, welcome to another podcast. In this one, I'm going to talk a little bit about training to failure and I'll talk about some concepts that are related to that just to help you understand what I'm saying a little bit better. So I think what we'll start off with is just figuring out exactly what a stimulating rep is and how the size principle works and then talk a bit more about how perhaps training to failure may or may not be the way to go for stimulating some muscle growth. Now, just a reminder, if you enjoy these podcasts or you get something out of them, I'd really appreciate it if you'd give me a rating and share it. That is the best way to support it. And it means that if I get enough support, obviously I can keep making these and I can devote more time and more effort towards it. All right, so let's dive in. So what I want to start with is just kind of talking about essentially how we grow muscle in the first place. Essentially, what we're trying to do is recruit muscle fibers and place mechanical tension on them. So as you probably know, every muscle is made up of lots of different muscle fibers. So there's all these bundles of muscle fibers that make up our biceps or our quadriceps or whatever it is. And our goal is to get as many of those fibers as we can in each muscle or in each muscle group uh, to do some work. And we want to place some mechanical tension on them. When we place mechanical tension on a muscle fiber, or at least we get it to sort of start contracting, it mechanically deforms the muscle fiber itself. So it kind of gets squished and pulled and stretched. And that starts this chemical cascade within the muscle fiber that enables muscle protein synthesis to go ahead. So our main goal is really just to get some recruitment of as many fibers as we can get them to do some work so that they get that mechanical tension and that kicks off the chemical cascade that causes them to grow. So the the thing is with this is that when I say mechanical tension, most people will automatically go, oh, that means lifting heavy. And certainly you can get tons of muscle growth by lifting heavy. You get a high amount of recruitment when you lift heavy, but it's a bit of a misconception that you have to lift heavy to maximize mechanical tension. When we say mechanical tension, we mean tension on a per fiber basis, meaning that we're not talking about how much tension or how much force the whole muscle is generating. We're talking about trying to get a single muscle fiber to generate force, which actually means that you don't necessarily have to lift that heavy. I'm gonna explain how that works uh, in, in a second over the next couple of minutes. But just to start with, to kind of set the scene, the reason we know this or the reason we started to figure this out was because there was some research showing that you get the same muscle growth lifting with light loads to failure or moderate loads to failure. So 25 to 35 rep max, which is like 30, 40% 1RM, all the way to failure, produce the same amount of muscle growth as a moderate load of eight to 12 rep max, like 70 to 80% one rep max, Um, to failure. And so that's showing us that you don't actually need to lift heavy to get some muscle growth. So what's going on here? Well, to kind of understand it really well, you need to know a little bit about motor units and the size principle. So I'm going to spend the next minute or so talking about that. So a motor unit, what is that? Well, I mentioned that we have these bundles of muscle fibers that make up our muscles themselves. But all of those muscle fibers aren't activated at the same time. Your brain and your nervous system can sort of selectively recruit and use these muscle fibers. And that's really handy because it means that we can 
have a sort of graded force output for a muscle. Like we don't need to maximally contract a muscle every time we move. Uh, you know, being able to kind of grade your movement so sometimes there's low force and sometimes there's high force and everything in between is really, really important. It makes our movements smooth and it makes us actually able to perform tasks, right? So the way it works is that um, we get a signal from our brain, the motor cortex in the brain. It travels down the spine and then there's a motor nerve that attaches to bundles of muscle fibers. And that motor nerve basically controls a certain number of muscle fibers within a muscle. Now, we call that a motor unit. So the motor unit is a bunch of different muscle fibers and the nerve that controls them, that switches them on or off. Uh, now, those can be different sizes. So you might have a really small motor unit, which is a nerve and a small amount of muscle fibers, or you might have a large motor unit, and that is a nerve with a lot of muscle fibers. And each of these kind of has a, an advantage. If you have a... Uh, motor unit that's quite small what it means is that you have one nerve controlling a small amount of muscle fibers and that is pretty handy if you're trying to do fine movements that are kind of low force so think about maybe blinking your eyes or moving your eyeballs around or using your hands for example those are generally a little bit more sort of small motor unit oriented because we don't need a lot of force there and it allows really fine movements with a lot of precision but sometimes we want to just recruit as many fibers in as short a time as possible and that's where the larger motor units are actually a little bit more useful so for example in the legs you might have one nerve that controls a lot of different muscle fibers and so it just takes that one nerve switching on to create a lot of force and this greater rate of force development means that obviously it's pretty handy if we're trying to like run or jump or something like that and generate heaps of force at once. So um, we have these different size motor units and ultimately when we're trying to grow muscle, obviously we want to switch on as many motor units as we possibly can because if we switch on all of those motor units, it means all of those fibers that are part of that motor unit end up contracting and being recruited and experiencing some mechanical tension and then it kicks off muscle growth, right? So I like to use this analogy. Your brain's pretty smart. It, doesn't, it knows it doesn't have to use all of your motor units at once for every movement. So how can we kind of get every motor unit involved so that we can stimulate as much muscle fiber as we can? Well, uh, I like to use this analogy of a tug of war. And sometimes I use the image from Squid Game. If you've watched Squid Game, there's like one event where, this is gonna make no sense to you if you haven't watched it, by the way. But um, there's one event where they have to do a tug of war, right? And so they have to come up with this like strategy, like, oh, how are we going to win this tug of war? So I like to imagine this scenario where imagine you had to, you're at a tug of war competition and you had to do like 10 rounds in a row. Probably the best strategy is not to go absolutely all out every single round, right? Like if you were smart about it and you went, right, our goal is to win every single one of these 10 rounds, you're probably not gonna go to the max every single round because after three or four rounds, you're gonna get really, really tired and you'll get knocked out in the last five rounds or whatever. So what you might do is you might say, okay, well, here's our strategy. For the first round or three rounds or something like that, we're going to keep our strongest players in reserve so that they don't get tired too early. We might have the people who have slightly better endurance uh, but maybe aren't quite as strong, they're going to do the first couple of rounds 
by themselves if they can manage it. And then we'll slowly bring in the strongest players later on so that they don't get tired too early. But as they go through one by one, the participants on your team, your teammates slowly fatigue and they can't keep winning. So more players have to join in. So maybe you have, you know, 10 people and in, on the first round you use five of them. But then slowly they start getting tired and they say, oh, okay, you know, we're up to around three or four now. Let's bring in another, another guy to help us out. And so you go and eventually by, you know, maybe the seventh, eighth or ninth round, you have all of your players participating. They're all pulling equally hard, as hard as they possibly can. And this is similar to what happens in a muscle. So let's say you're doing 10 reps in a set. Your brain knows that, hey, this weight isn't heavy enough to justify using all of our muscle fibers producing as much force as they can from rep one. In fact, we can lift this multiple times. So let's just use, you know, a small number of our available motor units to start with. And let's start with the, the smaller ones. And so for the first few reps, you just use the smallest, weakest motor units, but they slowly get more fatigued and your brain recognizes that if you want to keep lifting this weight, you're going to have to bring in some more muscle fibers. And so it recruits more motor units and more motor units. And eventually, as you get close to failure, what's happening is that you've stimulated and recruited a whole bunch of different muscle fibers and you're down to the last ones available. And so by the time we hit failure, we've systematically recruited and placed tension on every available muscle fiber in that muscle. So that's why getting close to failure is really important because you're not going to recruit and stimulate every muscle fiber unless there's a need to, unless you require all of them to keep lifting that weight. And you'll notice that sometimes people say it's the slow reps that give you the most muscle growth. And the reason why is because these are the reps where you're getting close to failure. And you can tell you're close to failure when your reps start to slow down a lot, even though your effort is quite high because your brain's just trying to produce as much force as it can, but a lot of your muscle fibers have just gotten tired and started to fall out of recruitment. The slow contraction speed is also quite important because it means that there's a high number of muscle fibers simultaneously contracting, which means the force is quite high and the force then enables that mechanical tension which enables our chemical cascade to start and produce some muscle growth so you know with that said i think some people will then go well okay so it makes sense to just kind of go to failure no matter what on every set and certainly i think the idea is that the, the reps that are close to failure the ones that start to slow down despite high effort are the most stimulative reps and they get exponentially more stimulative because if you remember, we start with our smallest, weakest motor units. In other words, the least number of muscle fibers. And as we approach failure, your brain calls on more and more and more motor units. And those, those larger motor units involve more muscle fibers, meaning that the reps that are close to failure are the ones that are recruiting the most muscle fibers. And so this concept of effective reps started to emerge where we kind of recognize that because those last few reps before failure are involving the larger motor units and therefore stimulating the most muscle, these are the ones that are the most effective for muscle growth. It doesn't mean that you won't get any muscle growth if you don't get close to failure, but it does mean that at least theoretically, the reps that are close to failure are the most stimulative of muscle growth. Um, 
Now, there's a bit of debate around exactly how close to failure those effective reps are, but the general idea that's been floated out there is that the last five or so reps before you hit complete failure are probably the most stimulative. And this is what has ended up being dubbed effective reps. So effective reps are the ones that are closest to failure. So if you do a set of 10 and you go all the way to failure, the idea is that the first sort of five or so reps of that set are not particularly stimulative of muscle growth. They probably do stimulate a bit, but maybe not that much. And the ones that are the most effective for muscle growth are the last five. And so we're kind of just getting through those first five so that we can accumulate some fatigue in the muscle uh, so that we get close to failure. Uh, so in simple terms, the last reps before failure are the most stimulatory reps because they involve full motor unit recruitment and a slow contraction velocity. Um, so when we're close to failure, that's when full motor unit recruitment occurs. And when we're near failure, our sort of muscle shortening velocity starts to get quite slow, which means that each fiber is experiencing more mechanical tension and more force, and that's receiving a larger stimulus to grow. If it contracts too quickly, then it's just not under tension for that long a time, right? So this idea is pretty handy, I think, but it's maybe not entirely accurate. And I'm gonna explain why with a little bit of research. So there've been a few studies or quite a few studies, around a dozen I think that I'm aware of, that indicate that you don't necessarily need to go all the way to failure to actually get maximal muscle growth. Now, some of these are done in untrained people, which is still a viable research method, but I wanna focus on the ones in trained populations for now. And there's three main ones that I think are reasonably convincing. The first one is by Carol et al. in 2019. And what happened in this study was that one group trained to failure on at least one set of every exercise, and the other one used relative intensity to ensure that they stayed quite far away from failure. The study went for 10 weeks, and they found that muscle growth was really similar between groups. So in this study, we have one group going to failure on at least one set of every exercise, and the other group staying pretty far away from failure and similar results. Okay, cool. Well, that's reasonably convincing. The next study is by Santaniello et al. in 2020. And what they did in this one was a within subject design, which is really interesting. So within subject basically means that you do the um, both the control condition and the intervention with the same person. And in this case, what they did is they trained one leg differently to the other leg. And the nice thing about it is that it basically controls a ton of variables. So I might have a lot of different training history and genetics and lifestyle to another person, but if I'm comparing one leg to the other leg, the only difference between those is the training protocol that I use on each leg. So what they did is they got a bunch of subjects and they randomized which leg they were going to use the training protocols with, so that obviously it removes that issue of whether you're right-handed or left-handed. So what they did is they trained one leg to failure on the leg press and the leg extension. And on the other leg, they stopped short of failure. Uh, again, leg press, leg extension. They found that the quad growth and leg press 1RM actually increased more in the non-failure leg over 10 weeks, which is really interesting. Now, in this study, I believe they stayed one to two reps in reserve. So one to two reps away from failure in the non-failure group. So it was still pretty close to failure, but it definitely indicates that you don't actually have to go all the way to failure to get all of your effective reps in, right? And to get a really good training result. In fact, 
you know, the non-failure leg actually had better results in this particular study. So this is starting to get a bit more convincing for me. And then Anderson et al. this year in 2021 published a study in which they had each subject training uh, in, in the same way as the last study. So they did one-legged leg presses and leg extensions over nine weeks and they acted as their own control. So they compared both legs. This time what they did is instead of just telling the people, oh, you know, stay a couple of reps away from failure, they measured the velocity loss so that they could get an actual idea of how close to failure these people were. It wasn't just like the subject guessing how close from how far away from failure they are. So what they did is they used velocity loss to determine how close to failure to go. And on one leg, they ended the sets after the subjects lost about 15% of their initial velocity. And on the other leg, they stopped them when they had lost about 30% of their velocity. So what we're talking about is on a 15% velocity loss, you're still like more than five reps away from failure. You're probably closer to like 10 reps away from failure. On a 30% velocity loss, you're probably five or less reps away from failure. Um, So what we're comparing here is basically getting within five reps from failure, which is, if you remember, sort of the so-called effective rep sort of zone. And the other group was actually staying much further away than five reps away from failure, meaning that technically they're not getting into any effective reps whatsoever. So you wouldn't really expect to see much muscle growth from these people or from these legs. But what they actually found over nine weeks is that there were no differences in muscle growth between the groups, which is quite surprising to me. But it starts to make me think, okay, if in all of these studies, and there are others as well, I just find these are probably the the best examples because they're in trained population and they use this sort of within subject design. You know, if we are finding that at very worst, there's no difference between stopping short of failure versus going all the way to failure, then why would you go to failure? It's harder, greater recovery cost. Why would you do it? In fact, in some of these studies, it's kind of indicating that perhaps it's even better in some cases to stay further away from failure. So that's quite an interesting development in the research. And it does challenge this concept of effective reps. Now, this is for muscle growth. I just want to touch quickly on strength training as well, because I know most of us uh, are also interested in getting strong. I actually think that for strength training, staying away from failure is probably just straight up better. And the reason why is because as you get tired, what happens is that your force production goes down, right? You have less muscle fibers to contribute to force production. And so the basic idea for trying to get stronger is that we want to produce as much force as possible. So the force production of each rep is pretty important to make sure that we are producing maximal strength. Training with heavy loads and low fatigue means that we get a high amount of force production. And therefore, if we want to make sure that we're getting stronger over time, we probably don't want to be doing a lot of reps where we're getting really, really tired and we can't produce that much force. Now, sometimes... Yes, getting close to failure, learning to grind, doing slow reps with some fatigue, no problem at all for strength training. But I think probably a majority of strength training should be done with a relatively heavy load, or maybe let's call it a moderate to heavy load, that is fairly far away from failure because it allows you on each of those reps to still use a good amount of weight, but to maximize the amount of force production. So just an aside for strength training. But for hypertrophy, this concept of kind of effective reps getting really close to failure to maximize muscle growth is absolutely still valid in my mind. 
However, I think trying to give a hard limit of like, oh, it's the last five reps before you hit failure that are sort of exclusively effective for muscle growth is probably not an accurate one. And I'll be watching the literature as it develops with great interest to figure out what's going on with this. I still think that for most people, trying to get reasonably close to failure is still the best move, right? So I wouldn't say that based on this research, you should be actively avoiding getting close to failure. I still think getting close to failure is really important, but I think you don't have to actually train all the way to failure. And in fact, probably keeping maybe sort of two or three reps in reserve from genuine failure is probably a better move because as I mentioned, it still involves a high degree of motor unit recruitment. It still involves a high degree of muscle growth according to the research we have at the moment, but it does limit the amount of fatigue that you generate over time. Um, One of the sort of paradoxes for muscle growth is that training closer to failure does produce greater motor unit recruitment and therefore theoretically a greater stimulus for muscle growth but on the flip side it also produces exponentially more fatigue as you approach failure and long term what we're really trying to do is get in as much productive training as we can now if you are accumulating a lot of fatigue from a session yes that session might be highly stimulative but it might mean that because you're carrying extra fatigue your next session might be not that great or maybe the session after that. And over time, it may mean that you're getting in less productive training, even though some of your sessions are like really hard and you're pushing super hard and they might be super stimulative. So long story short, I think we can kind of take the middle route here. It's not about avoiding failure at all costs, but it certainly is about trying to get reasonably close to failure without necessarily feeling like we have to push there all the time. Now, there are some other benefits to training to failure. I think occasionally doing that is really helpful for a couple of reasons. Number one, it just ensures that we are actually training hard enough. I think a lot of people expect that, oh, I can lift this amount of weight for X number of reps and they end up actually not being anywhere close to it. So uh, there was a study done where they brought in a bunch of guys, um, I think they had been training for at least six months or something like that. And they asked them, hey, what uh, weight do you normally use on your bench press? If you were going to do like 10 reps, how much weight would you use? And so the subjects gave them that load and then they said, all right, cool. Well, we're going to put that load on the bar and we're going to see how many reps you can do with it. And most of the people there did way more reps than 10. And some of them did over 20 reps. I think there was a couple that did like 24 reps. So if you're someone who is coming in and going, yeah, I'm going to do 10 reps on my bench press or my squat or my leg press or whatever it is, and you put on this load and it's actually something that you could do like 20 plus reps with, then I would say that that's probably not going to be very stimulative for hypertrophy. You're still going to get some muscle growth out of it, but it's just not going to be very much and it's certainly not going to be optimal. So with that in mind, I think we can say that often our own perception of what we're capable of can limit uh, you know, how much effective training we actually get. And in that case, just kind of going like, hey, uh, I'm going to do a set to failure every now and then, just so you can kind of see what that feels like and you can show yourself what you're capable of is actually really handy. It gives you some sort of anchor or some kind of foundation to compare yourself with. So I think that's one advantage of training to failure. Another advantage of training to failure is that it helps you to understand if you're progressing or not. So If I, for example, take, let's say I've been bench pressing and I can do 100 kilos and I 
decide, okay, I'm going to just test how many reps I can get at hundred kilos and I get 10 reps before I hit failure. Great. I know for a fact that's what I'm capable of. There's no guessing. There's no like, oh, I think I had another two reps there. I know for a fact that I did 10 reps and then I physically couldn't lift another rep and I was done. Then if I tested myself again in like eight weeks time and I did the same thing and I got 11 reps, awesome. Well, now I know for a fact that I have progressed. I can do more reps. And the reason I know that for a fact is because I went all the way to failure. If I was going until I thought I was two or three reps in reserve, I think I might sort of in the back of my head go, yeah, but I'm not positive if I could have gotten another two reps or another three reps or whatever. I'm kind of guessing a little bit. So another reason why going to failure might be helpful occasionally is that it just helps you to actually understand if you're making progress or not. So I I definitely think there's a place for training to failure, but this idea that you have to train to failure or with like one rep in reserve all the time, or you're not going to build muscle is just not true. It's just not true. And I think as the evidence continues to develop, it'll give us a little bit more nuance. We do know that you have to get reasonably close to failure to maximize muscle growth, but we don't really know exactly how far away. And uh, I really look forward to some future data. And if I find anything new that comes out over the next year or so, I will certainly update you. All right, hope that has been informative. As always, I welcome any feedback. Luke at luketalk.com. Uh, is where you can get in touch with me. Once more, if you could rate and or share, I would be really appreciative. And that's it for this week. Catch you again soon. Cheers.